Good morning. I am so excited to be able to, to share from God's word with you this morning. I just wish that we could be with you, that we could meet you in person. Uh, we haven't had that chance before, and it would be great to be able to see your faces and uh, get to know you a little bit and, and have you see us and get to know us a little as we open the word of God and hopefully study something that will be both challenging and encouraging to us in our individual Christian lives as we follow Jesus. I'd like to begin this morning by sharing briefly about who we are and the ministry that we've been involved in in Mexico for the past, well, 18 years now, and then we'll transition from that into the message uh, that we're going to look at in Mark chapter 8 this morning. So our names are Dan and Anne-Marie Chapel, and uh, these are our four boys. Our oldest is Seth, then Josiah, then Zephan, whose his name comes from Zephaniah, and Isaiah is our youngest. Anne-Marie and I are missionary kids. We both grew up in Ecuador in South America. Many of you may know who Anne-Marie's parents are. Keith and Ruth Ann Elliott have been missionaries with World Partners, which is our denominational mission branch. They've been missionaries in Canada and a little bit in Mexico recently, but also most of their career in Ecuador in South America. And my parents were with Avant and they, I grew up in the Amazon rainforest in, in Ecuador. And Anne-Marie and I met in the capital city when we were at boarding school. Now, we've been in Mexico for 18 years. Uh, we went originally and were involved in church planting with Ivan and Donna Preston, who some of you might know. Uh, we spent three years church planting in Mexico City and started Roca de Amor and Roca de Salvación, two churches that continue on now with their Mexican pastors. And then we were asked by our sister denomination in Mexico, which is the Iglesia Misionera de Mexico, or the Missionary Church of Mexico, we were asked to move to the city of Puebla and develop a new leadership training program for their pastors. Now, this is really important because the vast majority of our pastors in Mexico are very poor. They live in primarily in rural areas. They're indigenous, so they speak some indigenous language as their mother tongue, and, uh, and, 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 and they're involved in some sort of, sort of subsistence lifestyle. Uh, we work with seven different, at this point in time, we're working with seven different people groups, not including Spanish. Uh, so eight, I guess, with Spanish. And uh, our pastors are involved in things like um, farming, uh, you know, two acres of property by hand, uh, two to five acres of by hand. They, they're, they're, they're bricklayers, they're bakers, they sharpen tools, they, they harvest sugarcane. So they're, they're not wealthy and, and they just manage to make ends meet. And it's impossible for them to leave their churches and their families and their job and go study in a big city because of their education level, grade one or two level education, because of the language barrier that they would face and because of the finances, they're just not able to leave and go to the cities to study. So the denomination asked if we would be willing to, to equip the pastors where they are at as they are doing ministry where they live. So we are using a material called SEAN, which means Seminary by Extension to the Nations. It's being used all around the world in 85 different languages to train and equip and mentor pastors and new pastors as well, lay leaders around the world. So what the students do is every student in a class, classes, we try to get classes between five and 10 people. And the pastor will usually be what we call the tutor or the leader of the group. That doesn't mean he has to teach. It just means he has to guide the conversation and, and the meetings. So during the week, each student will work through a, a book on their own at home for an hour to two hours a day. And then once a week, they will gather together. And the pastor has another manual that 
takes them much deeper. They're, they get application questions about what they have studied on their own during the week. And any doubts or questions or, or difficulties that they might have, they're able to discuss that together and apply this material to their personal lives, but also to the, the local church and to the ministry that they're involved in. And then we we visit them. Um, we try to visit monthly when we're in Mexico. We, we dive in and encourage them. We'll lead a class for them. Um, just, just be there and encourage them and mentor them and get them, get them excited and going and continuing on this program. So let me introduce you to a few of the students that we have. This is a church high in the mountains in the northern mountains of, of Puebla. It's called the Sierra Norte de Puebla, the high mountains of Puebla. The pastor is sitting at the far end with his head bowed facing towards us. This is Pastor Mariano. And these people are Nahuatl, they're Aztec, and they speak Aztec as their first language. So we had just begun this group. This is their one of their first meetings. And uh, we, we just introduced the material and explained to them how to work through it. This is another church in a town called Sacapuaxla, up, up in the mountains as well. Also Nahuatl, or they call themselves Mexican, which comes from Mexica. Mexica is the actual word of the Mexica people, which is where the word Mexico comes from. But uh, they're Aztec or Nahuatl as well. This is a pastors on the far right and another pastor on the far left with their wives. Here we have Pastor Teo and uh, a little group that's studying down in Gabino Barreda. These people actually speak Spanish as their first language, and uh, but their education level is quite low. Teo works uh, taking care of pigs for a wealthy person in the community or a wealthier person in the community. And his education is really low. He has a difficult time reading and studying. So his wife, Cheli, is right in the middle with a striped shirt. And she often will, will teach the lesson to him. She'll read the lesson out loud and they together at home are studying it. And, uh, and then they come together once a week for their, their group meeting as well. Um, this is Pastor Loredo from way up in northern Mexico in the city of Tampico. He has a really small church in a very poor area there. And, um, and he's actually stepping forward and beginning classes now as well, just recently. Um, the man here in the middle with the glasses is leading this group. He's not actually a pastor. He's the right-hand man of one of our pastors and has started a second group in um, uh, San Miguel. And this is just the second group. He's in the more advanced group as well. Uh, his name is Lazarus or Lazaro. This is Pastor Cristobal and his wife, Sara. These are Chinanteco people. They speak Chinanteco as their mother tongue. It's a very difficult tonal language with five tones. And um, he, doesn't, he doesn't read very well in, in Spanish. He doesn't speak Spanish really, really well, but enough to be able to communicate. And they have a small group of, of students in their area as well. Pastor Alfonso and his wife are uh, leading a very small church in Castillotla. Uh, this, is a, this is not their church in the background. This was a bigger celebration of the 25th anniversary of a, of, of a, of a couple. Another couple that had cel was celebrating, a, they, they call it a wedding. It's actually just a renewal of their vows um, 25 years later. And these are another group of just a whole bunch of our pastors from the, the Sierra Norte. They're all uh, Nahuatl. They all speak Spanish or Nahuatl as their first language. On the far right, we have Pastor Sebastian, who was the, the president of the Missionary Church of Mexico until he passed away just over a year ago. Um, and then each one of these pastors in the front is pastoring a local church and they're all working full-time in some sort of a, of a subsistence job to keep their families going. Uh, the guy on the far left, for example, during the hot season, he sells um, uh, Frosties. He has a, a tricycle with a big block of ice in the front and he takes it around on the streets and he scrapes them and sells them in a tourist town that he lives in called Quetzalan. 
And in the hot time or the cold time of the year, because it does get quite cold, as you can see, we're all wearing jackets there. Um, he sells corn, he, corn on the cob, but they, they boil it and then they, it's, it's field corn and they stick it on a stick and they smother it in mayonnaise and cheese and, and chili. And uh, it's, it's a delicacy as well. So that's what he does. He just sells on the streets. Uh, these things. And, and these guys all have jobs like that. And behind them is our missionary team. On the far left is Moises Ruiz, who's uh, now sort of helping out informally in Mexico. They're living in Kitchener. And uh, then myself, and then Phil English, who's continuing to work with these pastors. And then Joel Zanting was our director at the time of this picture. This is uh, Pastor Juan. He's Mazateco. He speaks Mazateco as his first language. His Spanish is, is not very good, but we're able to communicate with each other. And, uh, and he and, and two other people in his church are studying. Um, and the, one of his young guys who's in his early 20s, his name is Esaul, has started a church in the next town, a town called Corral de Piedra. Juanito works as a sugarcane harvester. Six months of the year, he harvests sugarcane. The rest of the year, he pieces whatever work together that he can. He has a really small uh, sort of a hobby farm of his own that he helps, you know, get, he has chickens and eggs and different things that he, he does to try and make ends meet. Um, so pray for them as they, as they work together to start this little church in the next town. Um, this is Pastor Juan. He's Totonaco which is another tribal group. And he's got a church going in um, El Paraiso. It's called a little town called El Paraiso. The church is just behind him there. This group is up in the north of Mexico in, in uh, Tampico, um, near Ciudad Altamira, where that other guy was from Loredo that we introduced a few minutes ago. There are five groups up in that area. Now, the man in, on the far left here in the back, his name is Bernardo. When Pastor Sebastian, the former president, passed away, Bernardo became the new president, and he and his right-hand man were leading these five classes up in the Tampico area in northern Mexico. But um, not long after he became president, just after the pandemic began, uh, Pastor Bernardo and Jaime, his right-hand man, were driving to a meeting and had a car accident and passed away. Uh, so there's now a third man who's now the, the new president in Mexico. But these five classes were left without leadership. And these men were very, very strong leaders, making sure these classes met. And uh, there, some of them are out in remote towns in the area. So we're working with his son, uh, also called Bernardo. And, and we're, we're trying to get these classes restarted in these different areas. This one is in the pastor's home, Bernardo's home. And here we have our most advanced group, which is in uh, a town called Xochitecatitla in the state of Tlaxcala. And uh, on the far right, we have Pastor Virginio, and his wife is right beside him. And then on the other end, we have another couple, Rodrigo and Elia. And they were working primarily with the youth, but Rodrigo more and more is becoming uh, Virginio's right-hand man. This group is nearing the end of their second year of studies. They're in the second level of, of studies. And all of them are very active in discipling in the church. Um, they're active in helping with leadership of the church, but they're also leading groups of Seon in the church. They've started two and three and four other groups uh, throughout the church. So it's, it's really exciting to see this happening. Another thing that's happening is that this group with a couple of other key leaders from the church took a challenge from the third book that they studied during the first year. And the challenge, it taught them how to go about doing a church plant and challenged them to work together as a team to start a church. So Rodrigo, has started with several other people is starting a church plant in the next town. And, and so we're overseeing that as sort of a mentor um, or a, a, a counselor to help them as they begin that process. 
This is another one of the groups in the same church with Pastor Virginio on the left. And uh, that's the same group meeting in a home. And then this is one of the guys from a second group who's discipling a new believer and using uh, the basic level information to help disciple a new believer. It's exciting to see them taking this information and using it. And here we have Anne-Marie with some of the women. Some of these women are pastor's wives and others are just leaders and women from the church. And uh, every time Anne-Marie goes with me, she isn't always able to because she's often at home making sure the kids can, can study, go to school and the local school that they attend. But when she's able to go with me on these trips, the, the pastor's wives just flock to her. They love to have her there. They always are looking for somebody uh, to build into them, to encourage them in ministry uh, and as their, their wives and mothers and pastor's wives. And, and, and Anne-Marie here has been leading a Bible study for the, the women in a women's retreat. And so here we have another pastor and his two daughters in the north end of the city. His name is Pastor Juan. Spanish is his first language. Um, this is the pastor's wife leading, uh, Pastor Virginia's wife leading one of the groups in, as well. This is another group way up in northern Mexico in one of those rural towns that I was talking to you about. And now this is here in Canada. Since we came to Canada a year ago, we had to come back because uh, our mission felt that because our second son is a type 1 diabetic, it was not safe for us to remain in Mexico during the pandemic. So they brought us back to Canada about a year ago. But we've been able to continue leading most of our classes and connecting with most of our pastors over the internet and by phone. So here we are leading a, a class. This is uh, with Virginio, our more advanced class um, over the internet, over Zoom. And uh, this was a different class doing the same thing. And then this is just grading some, some papers. So that's just a really brief overview of who we are and what we do. Uh, there's so much more we could share. There's so much other stuff that we're doing. But by way of brief introduction, this is who we are and what we've been doing in Mexico with World Partners, uh, our denominational mission branch, for the past 18 years. And if you want to connect more with us, here's how you can do it. We've got um, our blog, chapelsmexico.wordpress.com, our email, danchapel at gmail.com, or you could connect with us on Facebook at Chapels Mexico. We've got a number of different Facebook accounts, but that's the one that we're using primarily right now. So let's, uh, let's transition. Let's move on from this into the Word of God. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, uh, let me invite you to open with me in Mark chapter 8, and uh, we're going to look at verses 22 through 26 which if you've read this passage before, it's a little bit of a strange passage. And uh, you may have had questions. I know I, I have in the past. And as uh, I was trying to decide what to share from the Word of God, I was, I was sitting around with my family and, and one of my boys said to me, Dad, I've never really understood what, uh, what's happening in that passage. So I thought, well, that's great. That's a good place to start. Why don't we dive into, into what uh, Jesus does in this passage and, and try to understand and how we can apply that to our lives. But let me begin with a question for you this morning. Have you ever heard someone say something along the lines of going to church doesn't make you a good person? Uh, I've heard that many times, both here and in Mexico. And and, you know, th there's some truth in what they're saying. Going to church doesn't necessarily make you a good person. But, but if you think of it, uh, you know, going to the gym doesn't make you fit. And, uh, you know, if you're sick, going to the hospital doesn't guarantee that you're going to be healed. And yet, there's certain places that we go and certain things that we need to do when we want to see certain results in our lives. 
And uh, I think that's interesting because what we're going to see this morning, I think, is reflected by that statement. That there was, there's places that we need to go and things we need to do when we want to see certain things happen in our lives. But if you have found Mark 8, let's read the passage. I'll read it for you. It's Mark 8, verses 22 through 26. And this is Jesus and his disciples, and it says, They came to Bethsaida, and and, uh, that's an important thing because we're going to look at a verse referring to Bethsaida later on. They came to the city of Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man to beg and beg Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit in the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus said to him, or Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. So this is a strange passage. As I said before, what's going on here? Uh, what happened? There's a number of things that 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 just seem strange to us. Um, even you know when we consider the different miracles that Jesus has done at different times. There, there are times when he healed people by simply saying "Be healed" or "You are healed," and they were healed. Uh, there are other times that Jesus touched people. He touched a leper, and uh, it was a person that nobody would want to touch, and Jesus touched him and, and healed him. Uh, there's the case of, of the woman who touched Jesus. She touched the hem of his cloak and, and she was healed. Sometimes Jesus healed publicly. Sometimes he healed privately. Sometimes he even healed through acts of obedience. Uh, we have the story of the ten lepers where, where they came to Jesus and they wanted to be healed. And Jesus said, go and, and show yourself to the priest. And as they were going, they were healed along the way. So they had to obey and in the process of obeying, they were healed. There are even times when Jesus healed by casting demons out of people. It was demons that were making them sick. And and, and sometimes he would cast demons out and heal people. So there are many different ways that Jesus would heal people in Scripture. But this is the, the first time we see this happening in this way. In all of those other examples and every other example that we can look at in Scripture... The people are healed instantly when Jesus touches them or when he speaks to them or when he tells them to do something. They're healed in that moment fully and completely. But what happened here? I mean, verse 22 says, Jesus asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Well, that's, that's not fully healed. That's not completely healed. I remember uh, when I was in my early 30s and, and I had to get glasses for the first time. And I went to the eye doctor and had my exam and they told me to come back in two weeks to get my glasses. And, and when I went back and, and I was a little bit nervous and a little bit excited to see what this would be like. And uh, when I put my glasses on, something wasn't right. And I thought that maybe my eyes just had to adjust to, to seeing through glasses and, and, and having a new prescription. But what happened is one of my eyes is tricky and, and, and the prescription was slightly off and I couldn't see right. And I wasn't content to leave with my glasses partly working. Uh, and so they took them back and they, we did a, a further eye exam and fixed the problem and got the glasses made right. And uh, you know, none of us would be happy if we took our car to the mechanic and, and we were to get it back kind of fixed. 
sort of fixed. It, it, it'll get you there, maybe. Oh. And in this, this story that we're reading this morning, Jesus didn't heal the man fully. He, he looked around and he saw people that, that looked like trees walking around. And uh, nowhere else in Scripture does Jesus have to heal somebody twice. So what was going on here? Why did Jesus have to heal this man two times? Was he, was he just having a bad day? Did he, did he not sleep well the night before? Did he not get his morning coffee? What's going on? Well, as, as I thought about this and I reflected on it, I thought there must be something deeper happening here. There must be something to this story that, that doesn't jump out at us right away. So I began reflecting on it and, and I did some reading and, and it was interesting. I stumbled on, on some interesting information about how our friendships affect us and influence us. And I did a really quick Google search and, and there's, there's dozens of ways that the people that we form friendships with influence our lives. And here are, are, are four, just the first four that came up that I found. It says that having strong-willed friends increases our own self-control. The next thing is that having fewer friends increases the likelihood that we will be willing to take financial risks. And the third one is that people with many friends often live longer than those who don't have many friends. And the fourth and final one says friends influence our fitness and our eating habits. So we can see, and there are many other ways that our friendships influence us, but we can quickly see that the people we hang out with will have a big impact on, on us, on how we live, on how we think, and on how we view the world. Now, you'll remember that we said at the beginning that if you want certain changes in your life, there are certain places you need to go and certain things that you need to do. But it is also true that when there are certain things that we want to happen in our life, there are places that we should not go, and there are things that we should not do. Because... Where we are and who we are with influences us. And I think that's what's going on here in the case of this man in Bethsaida. There are two interesting things that, that jumped out of this passage at me. The first one is that this man didn't seek Jesus out. Usually in scripture, people come to Jesus looking for something. They want to be healed or they want a family member healed. They come to him and seek him out. This man didn't. The second thing is that Jesus took him by the hand and he led him out of Bethsaida. He hasn't done that before either. Why did he take this man by the hand and lead him outside of the town before he healed him? Let's look at two verses to give us a little bit of context to this. The first one is found in Matthew 13, verses 54 through 58. It says, When Jesus, coming to his own town, he began teaching the people in the synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now, this is interesting because the family who knew Jesus 
didn't really care about what his message was. They didn't really care about the miraculous powers. I mean, they were amazed that he could do them, but rather than, than, than believing in him, rather than placing their faith in Jesus, they were offended by him. They said, this, we know this boy. And they, they were offended that he would come and try to teach them and do miracle, miraculous signs and wonders in, in his hometown. But what's interesting to me is that last verse, verse 58. It says, he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now, I don't know if it was their faith, the lack of faith wouldn't allow him to do the miracles, or if he just wouldn't respond to them because of their lack of faith. We're going to see later on, I'm going to talk briefly about what faith is. Because over and over again in in these passages, and in another one that we're going to look at in a minute, we see that Jesus says to people their faith had healed them. So what does that mean? How does faith heal? And and, and what's that all about? We'll look at that a little later on. But the second passage I'd look to look, like to look at with you this morning is Matthew 11, verse 21. It says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So remember, the story that we're looking at this morning in, in Mark chapter 8 is taking place in and around the city of Bethsaida. And here in this verse that we just looked at, Bethsaida is condemned. Bethsaida is condemned because miracles were performed there, and and if they had been performed in other cities that were sinful cities that had been judged by God, it says they would have repented. They would have come to Christ. But Bethsaida refused to do so. So we see in the story of, of Jesus in his hometown that The people refused to accept him and Jesus couldn't do miracles there or wouldn't do miracles in his hometown. And then we see that Bethsaida was like them. Bethsaida also refused to repent in spite of the miracles, in spite of the teachings of Jesus. That gives us the context in which this blind man is brought to Jesus. So another thing jumps out here, and this is verse 23. It says that Jesus spit on his eyes. Now, to us, that's kind of gross. And we we can't understand why Jesus would do this. He did it at another time, too, when he spit in the mud and put the mud on a man's eyes and sent him to wash wash it off. And and he was restored, his sight was restored to him. But why would this happen? Well, I I heard a story um, a number of years ago from a woman by the name of Marilyn Laszlo, um, a missionary among the Juana people in Papua New Guinea. She spent many years translating scripture into their language and teaching it to them. But she says that the moment when people really understood who Jesus was, was when she translated these passages of scripture that talk about Jesus healing by spitting. He spit in the mud and put it on the blind man's eyes. And in this story that we're looking at this morning, he spit directly on the man's eyes. And although it seems strange and and gross to us, in many of these other cultures and tribal areas around the world, it's very common for the witch doctors to heal by spitting and blowing. Where I grew up in in Ecuador, among the tribes there, it was common for them to blow smoke, special kinds of smoke over people, believing that that cured and and cleaned them. So the the, the Juana people had witch doctors who would spit and blow. They would take water and and different stuff in their mouth with herbs and, and stuff in it, and they would blow it and spit it out on people to heal them. Now, when the Juana people heard that Jesus healed a blind man by spitting on him, 
This was the, the point where they understood who Jesus was and they began to give their lives to him. In fact, they began to call Jesus the most powerful spitter in the world. Now Jesus asks the blind man a very important question. He asks him if he sees anything. He says, do you see anything? And, and I don't think Jesus is asking if the blind man's eyes have started working again. Jesus knows everything. He knows that he's healed many other people instantly in, in many other places. I think this has more to do with the circumstances. That Jesus went into this place, found this man, his friends brought him to Jesus, and then he took him by the hand. The blind man still hadn't asked Jesus for anything. His friends just brought him to Jesus. Jesus took him by the hand and led him outside the city. And he still hasn't asked Jesus to be healed. Jesus just does it. He begins. He spits on his eyes. And then he says, do you see anything? I think what Jesus is asking here goes a little bit deeper than just his eyes. I think he's asking, do you understand who I am? Do you understand what I can do for you? And as, as this faith begins to grow in the blind man, Jesus then takes the second step and he fully restores this man's sight. And, and in verse 26, he says to him, don't even go back into the village. Don't go back there. It's, it's a place of spiritual darkness, of lack of faith, of unrepentance, people who don't want to follow Jesus. And he says, don't go back to that old life and to that old place. Instead, go with your friends. Go with those who have faith. Go with those who, who brought you to me. Go back to your own home and be there. You see, lack of faith was preventing God from working in this blind man's life. And he had to take him through a step of growing this man's faith. And we can compare this to another story just a, a few chapters later in Mark chapter 10. When, when, when another man comes to Jesus, when Jesus is just by the town of Jericho. And this man's response is completely different. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet. But he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing aside his cloak, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Now, what a contrast between these two stories. In the first, we have a man who didn't seek Jesus. Somebody had to come and get him and take him to Jesus. And then Jesus had to take him somewhere and cause his faith to grow before he could be healed. And then we have this story of Bartimaeus, another blind man. And, and this man, when he heard that Jesus was coming, his response was completely the opposite. He knew that Jesus had what he needed. 
that Jesus was the only one who could give him what he needed. And so he begins to cry out and scream and say, Jesus, have mercy on me. And here the people act differently. They're not like the other blind man's friends. The other blind man's friends must have known who Jesus was and they wanted him healed. So they went and got him and took him to Jesus. Here the crowd says, hey, be quiet. Stop bothering him. But he won't listen to them. He screams louder. He says, have mercy on me. Son of David, have mercy on me. And finally, Jesus stops and he says, call him to me. And so he, he jumps to his feet. Probably not the wisest thing for a blind person to do, but he, he jumps to his feet and he comes to Jesus. And Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? He doesn't have to ask him, do you, do you see anything? Do you, do you now know what I can do for you? Because this man already has faith. This man already knows what Jesus can do. So he comes and he says, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man says, Rabbi, I want to see. Jesus' response is interesting. He says, go, your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his his sight and followed Jesus along the road. Now, I I want to talk about that phrase, your faith has healed you. It pops up again and again in the Gospels. Your faith has healed you. I think we have... Today, in in North America and in Mexico, there's a growing misunderstanding of what this means. I think we've, we've come to understand faith as something that we have to muster up, a force or a power, kind of like the force in Star Wars or something like that. That if we could just have enough of it, that we could force God's hand, that he would have to heal us because the Bible says that with a little faith, we can move mountains. And so we have these people teaching that if you could just have enough faith, you would be healed. And so when somebody is sick, we often almost blame them for their illness by saying, you just don't have enough faith, or maybe there's sin in your life. But faith is not a power or a force. It's not something we have to muster up if we want to be healed. Faith is quite simply trusting in Jesus. That's what it is. Faith is trust in Jesus. Back in the, the, the mid to late 1800s, there was a man by the name of Charles Blondin who, was, uh, who became famous because he would cross the Niagara Gorge on a tightrope. And he did this many times and, and crowds would gather to watch him. Uh, sometimes he would take a chair and he would go out into the middle and sit on his chair. Um, once he even cooked breakfast, he took eggs and he sat down in the middle of, of this tightrope and he cooked his eggs out on the tightrope. And... Um, One time, the story is told that he had a wheelbarrow and he asked the crowd that was watching him cross this tightrope, he said, do you think that I can cross this tightrope with a wheelbarrow? And of course, everybody had, they they knew he could do this. So they started saying, yes, we believe you can do this. So Charles Blondin got up on the tightrope and he crossed with the wheelbarrow and he came back. And then he asked, who thinks I can cross the tightrope with somebody in the wheelbarrow? And of course, again, everybody said, yes, we believe that you can do it. And then Charles asked them, well, who wants to get into the wheelbarrow? And there was a long moment of silence because suddenly their their faith, I mean, they believed, but they didn't want to put that faith in action. Faith without action is dead, James tells us. And yet here, these people didn't want to get in. It wasn't really faith. It was faith as long as it didn't cost them something. 
And finally, one man said he would get into the wheelbarrow. He was willing to, to take that risk because he trusted Charles Blondin. Now, that's a definition of faith. Faith is not just intellectual assent. It isn't just, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and he died and rose again. It's, it's a decision to put my life in his hands. It's a, a trusting in him and in his sacrifice on my behalf to save me from my sins. And Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. That's what it means to be a, a disciple of Jesus Christ. Just believing intellectually isn't what it means to have faith in Jesus. It's to act accordingly and to, to, to submit to the Lordship of Christ in our lives and to surrender to him and to become like him. And as Jesus says, surrender, uh, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. We have a, a, an example of mature faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, the night before he was crucified, he was praying to his father and, and he was in agony. And he didn't want to go through what was before him. He didn't want the physical suffering and he didn't want the sins of the world to separate him from his father. And, you know, when he was on the cross and our sins were put on him, it says the father turned his face away from him. And Jesus was in agony over this. He was, he was praying and crying out. And it says that he said to his father, he prays and he says, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. And I think that this attitude demonstrates true, mature faith. When we say, Lord, this is what I want. Scripture, it's clear that we are to present our requests to him. He wants to know he's a good and kind and loving God. And yet mature faith believes that God will do what is best. Not always what is best for me. Jesus didn't want to die on the cross. That wasn't his best outcome for himself. But it was best for us. And God was putting him in that place for you and for me. And so Jesus says, not what I will, not what I want to happen, but what you want. I will submit to that. I will surrender to your will. And so I tried to come up with a way to define faith, to help us understand in, in a short, pithy statement what faith could mean. And this is what came to my mind. Faith moves God's heart, but it does not force his hand. Okay? God... It responds to our faith because we're expressing trust in him. But he's not forced to do anything. If we have a, a mountain load of faith, we cannot force God to do anything. For faith is just simply trusting in him and trusting that he will do what is best. Faith moves God's heart, but it does not force God's hand. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we're told that without faith... It is impossible to please God. So that's why works and being a good person and, and, and not doing bad things and, and all of the, that kind of stuff can't save us. It, we're told that our salvation does not come from works, but by God's grace and by his mercy. And it is our belief in him, our trust in him, placing our lives in him. That faith pleases God. That's why it says in Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And we have an example of that in Romans 4, verse 3. Abraham believed God, 
and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was not righteous because of his works. He was not righteous because he was a good man. Abraham was declared righteous because he believed what God said to him. That's faith. Faith moves God's heart, but it does not force God's hand. I found a quote. Um, this is on gotquestions.org. And uh, this is a website run by a man by the name of Michael Hoodman. And uh, it says, When Jesus said to certain people, Your faith has made you well, he was saying that their faith or their confidence in him had been the means of their restoration. So now as we think about these two stories of these two different blind men, the question that, that, that we need to consider is, what does this have to do with me? I mean, I'm not blind. I, I, I'm not a blind man. So where do I fit into this story? What's the lesson that God has for me? And I think there are three ways that we can apply this this morning. The first, first, this man didn't have faith. It was the faith of his friends. These men came and found the blind man and they took him to Jesus. Some of us might be like that blind man. Some of us may not really have any spiritual life in us. We, we have no, nothing that's drawing us to know Jesus and to get right with God. And uh, this morning I'd like to encourage you to, to, to change from that place to become more like Bartimaeus, the other blind man, recognizing who Jesus is and recognizing that only he can give you the spiritual life that you need. He can take away that spiritual blindness and you can enter into a restored and right relationship with him. Secondly, you may be um, a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus Christ, but you may have that young faith that the blind man had. You see, he, he began with no faith and then Jesus touched his eyes and then said to him, do you see anything? And remember, I said that that's almost like he was asking, do you understand now? Do you know who I am? Do you know what I can do for you? And some of us are in that place in our spiritual journey. We have sort of kind of started following Jesus and uh, we, we, we believe in him, but we haven't really fully gotten into the wheelbarrow yet. And I'd like to challenge you this morning to realize what Jesus is calling you to. Following Jesus is not just about him giving me what I want. Following Jesus is about surrendering to his lordship in my life. And doing as Jesus said, taking up our cross, denying ourselves, and following him. Life then becomes about Christ. Life then becomes about living for Him and not for ourselves. And thirdly, I'd like to, to challenge you to consider some of us are uh, more mature in the faith. We have a long time in the faith. And I'd like to challenge you that you may be like the friends of the blind man. This blind man who didn't seek Jesus, who didn't really seem to care who Jesus was or, or have any desire to, to seek Him out and know Him. And yet these friends came and took the blind man and led him to Jesus. Many of us uh, have that intimate and close relationship with Christ. And yet we're surrounded by family members and friends and co-workers who don't know him. And this is where we fit in. We are like the friends of that blind man who Jesus has sent out to find them and bring them to the feet of, of Jesus Christ. 
And they can, they can get to know who he is. And it's through our faith, through our faith in Jesus, that he will begin working in the lives of others as we pray for them, as we lay them before the throne of Christ and ask and plead that he would intercede in their lives and, and bring them to himself. I hope that this has been a, an encouragement to us and a challenge to us this morning as we reflect upon who are we and where do we fit in these stories? What man are we like? And uh, how will we grow? How will we change? And how will we act and, and carry out what is our responsibility in this story? I'd like to just close this morning with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great mercy and grace that you have for your people. Thank you for reaching out to us and finding us when we're in dark places like Bethsaida, when we aren't even looking for you. You send people and you draw us to yourself. God, I pray this morning for those who, who don't know you and aren't seeking you this morning. They may be here this morning. They may be friends. They may be family members of people who are here this morning. But we intercede for them and we ask, oh God, that you would work in their lives and that you would begin to draw them to yourselves, and yourself and show them who you are. Let them see you and know you and begin to be drawn to you and grow in their faith. And for those of us who are following you, Lord, I ask that you would give us an ever-growing desire to know you more, an ever-growing desire to become more like Christ and to not be content with that first baby step, but to have our sight fully restored and to enter into the, the type of discipleship that Christ would have us, where we follow after him with all of our heart and become like Jesus is. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and may God bless you.